Let me invite you, if you brought a Bible with you, to open to the book of 1 Samuel as we continue a series of messages on the life of David, a man after God's own heart. Today we're in chapter 26, and our reading will be the entirety of chapter 26. Hear now the word of the Lord as we read from 1 Samuel chapter 26. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself on the hill of Hakalah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. Have you ever gotten directions from somebody that lives in a rural part of this country? That's what it would sound like. Okay. Now to pick up again after the editorial comment. Um, and Saul encamped on the hill of Hakalah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness. David sent out spies and learned that Saul had indeed come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai the son of Zeruah, Who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping within the encampment with his spear stuck in the ground at his head, and Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Do not destroy him. For who can put out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As the Lord lives, the Lord will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. The Lord forbid that I should put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But take now the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from the Lord had fallen upon them. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on the top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? Then Abner answered, Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord, the king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king, your lord. This thing you have done is not good. 
As the Lord lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, the Lord's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at its head. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord and king hear the words of the servant. If it is the Lord who has stirred you up against me, may he accept an offering. But if it is men, may they be cursed before the Lord. For they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of the Lord, saying, Go serve other gods. Now therefore let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of the Lord. For the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like the one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will do no more harm because my life was precious in your eyes today. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here's the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. The Lord rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness. For the Lord gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against the Lord's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of the Lord, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, by the way, the last word Saul ever says to David, Blessed be you, my son of David, you will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. This is God's word, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we need light, we need understanding, we need help, we need enlightenment, and so we ask that the Holy Spirit, who inspired these words, would so work in our hearts that he would turn on the lights for us so that we can understand what you are saying to your church today. And may the Spirit bring upon us and bear upon us the truth we need to apply to our own hearts as we continue this journey with you until Jesus comes or until we die. And this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Now, the great theologian Yogi Berra was known to say, this is deja vu all over again. And chapter 26 almost seems to be a rerun of chapter 24. David, again, Saul is on the hunt. He's chasing David. His tears and his words in chapter 24 were clearly meaningless and short-lived. And again, David is in a position to kill Saul and end it. Yet again, he refrains, and again Saul expresses a measure of remorse. This time, David finds Saul and his men asleep. By the way, they had been put into a deep sleep by the Lord. Now, in Genesis, we know that Eve came out of the side of Adam, was made out of his rib. The Lord caused Adam to fall into a deep sleep sleep exactly the same terminology here as there was in this camp so you got to understand how they're camped out as the army in the very center it was like circles 
The perimeter was circles. He had 3,000 men. And so all around him, circling him, Saul that is, are all the 3,000 chosen soldiers. And Saul is in the very center of that circle and maybe even had something of a fortification around him. And so Saul is at the center. Now you know how Israel journeyed through the wilderness uh, after being redeemed out of Egypt, crossing the Red Sea. And when they had received instructions to build the tabernacle, in the center of Israel was always the tabernacle. And in the tabernacle, in the most holy place, was the Shekinah glory of God dwelling between the cherubim on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Saul, now as the Lord's anointed king, occupied that central place. Now, was it wrong for Saul to be there? Yes and no. Uh, no, because that's where the king would be uh, in his army, in the center, as the Lord's representative. On the other hand, Saul, uh, the kingdom had been taken away from him, so it wasn't legitimately there. But you know what happens? Everybody's in a deep sleep. And so David and this guy named Abishai, and you're going to hear a lot more about Abishai, and another guy named Joab, who at times seemed like a couple of thugs, but they were... Uh, soldiers, shall we say, and they were always ready to strike uh, at the drop of a hat. And these guys are with him, and so uh, he finds him asleep, and Abishai says, Our day of opportunity has come. Let me stick a spear through Saul while he's asleep. I can take his own spear stuck here in the ground beside his head, the spear that Saul had thrown at David time and again was now stuck in the ground, and beside it was a jar of water, or what we might call a canteen. And so Abishai simply wanted to take the spear. Now those two things that were by Saul's head were emblematic and uh, represented his legitimacy to kingship. And so when David took those out of the camp back with him, uh, before he began talking to Saul and to Abner, his military leader, David was as much as saying, it's over for you, buddy. I now have everything that represents being king of Israel. But he wouldn't kill him because that would be a presumptive act. He wouldn't raise his hand against the Lord's anointed. David imagines a number of scenarios for Saul's future, an untimely death, or a natural death, or a death in battle, and one of those did happen to him. Uh, God has many options of achieving his purposes and bringing justice, and it is not for Abishai or David to choose that option and to seek to force God's hand. That is presumption, that is not faith. People who uh, jump off buildings saying, God will take care of me, are presumptuous. And they learn right away that the law of gravity is still in effect. And so here David had to restrain Abishai from what made common sense to a soldier. He's there. He's vulnerable. We got a spear. One thrust with the spear. He's done. All this running around the wilderness is over with. But David was sensitive to blood guilt. That is killing someone who is the Lord's anointed. And uh, sometimes in my prayer life, and sometimes in my imagination, I find myself in prayer suggesting to God how he might 
or even should or must act in one of my situations. But he has options which I cannot even dream of. And he knows what is best to accomplish his purposes, that he takes all things together and works them for good to those who love him and who are the called according to his purpose. And what matters is that David's faith that the Lord will establish the kingdom is the bedrock on which he stands. Once again, David has a chance to skip this life of suffering and fast forward to his kingdom. You remember Abraham, don't you? Abraham was promised that his seed would be as the stars in the skies and the number of grains of sands upon the shore, and here he is, 90 or more, and still no child. And he tells the Lord, I'm over 90, my wife's womb is dead, why don't we take Hagar, my servant, and I will conceive the seed through her. And so David, I mean, Abraham decided to help the Lord out. And we're still living with the conflict <laughs> that came between those two seeds, the seeds of Hagar and the seeds of Sarah. Sarah was the one who suggested it. Because of that, there was resentment in the household between the two women. And, of course, Sarah told Abraham, even though she told him to do it, it was all his fault. You ever heard that before? No, maybe you haven't. <laughs> but it was his fault. He did do that rather than waiting on the Lord. And it is really hard to wait on the Lord. It is really hard not to jump ahead of him and try by our own measures, taking matters into our own hands and construct what we think is the right way. But if you're really interested in understanding what it means to walk with God in faith, you learn how to slow your roll a little bit and recognize God's timing and his work. David was tempted to skip again this life of suffering. The other time, when he cut off Saul's robe in the cave, he had, cave, he had another opportunity to hurry the process up. It's here, get rid of it, it's gone, move on. But there were bigger things happening. So David takes instead Saul's water jug and his spear, perhaps because they represent Saul's ability to sustain himself and protect himself, so he symbolically disarms Saul. This time, however, David speaks out to Abner, Saul's army commander, who should have protected Saul. Now, there is some good-humored banter in David's comments, but there is a serious point as well. David concludes, you and your men must die. It is literally you are the sons of death. That's what Saul called David, by the way. The point is not that David is not uh, David who's the son of death, but Abner. David is again proving that he intends no harm against Saul so that he does not deserve to be called the son of death. The shouted exchange wakes Saul, who recognized David's voice, and for a second time, David invites God to judge between him and Saul. In chapter 25, David rushed to judgment and his rush to revenge threatened to make him guilty. But this time around, David is happy to leave the justice to God. Uh, and in that case, we are told that the Lord struck down Nabal, the fool, the husband of, um, what's her name? Abigail, you're listening. Thank you. 
I really knew. I just wanted to see if you were listening. You are. Thank you. David uses the same word to suggest that the Lord may strike down Saul. David has learned that God will bring justice in his own time, in his own way, and he's learned how to wait upon the Lord. Now, for some of us, type A's in the world, the absolute worst four-letter word in the English language is W-A-I-T. I mean, I have been known, I, I, I hate to confess this before you all, but I had to get my car smogged. And you know what it's like to get your car smogged? And I thought my timing was impeccable. I was going to arrive, and maybe there might be two or three cars in front of me, but instead there were 13 or 14 cars in front of me. Now, you might as well torture me with water dripping on my head as to have me sit and wait through 14 people getting their car smogged so I can get my car smogged. So I'm here to confess to you that I was a day late on getting my car smogged, and if I'd listened to my sweet, lovely wife, she told me, why don't you bring it to the place where I get mine done? There's never anybody there. So the next day I go to where she gets her smog, and there's eight people in front of me. And she said, well, I can't help that. That's on you. <laughs> next day I go to where she gets her car smog, nobody there. So in the end, what I learned is I don't like to wait. I'm in a hurry. But God is not. God is never in a hurry. And David had to learn that. This doesn't mean that David is indifferent to injustice. There are often times in the Psalms where you will hear him cry out. But he did recognize that vengeance belongs to God. For it is written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. A Christian knows that ultimately God will bring justice. And a Christian ought to rejoice that God will bring justice. And so should everybody else in the world, people who are so upset over the concept of judgment. Why? Because if justice isn't dealt with, then we live with injustice. And injustice is destructive and uh, undercuts human flourishing in every way. But we leave the justice and judging to God. Now, again in 1 Samuel 26, we see that Samuel is again contrite. But his repentance always seems so shallow. But he does give his blessing to David. He admits that he's acted like a fool. He is a fool, by the way. And David is not. And he's the man that could have killed Saul with his own spear. But who knows that God delights and desires righteousness and faithfulness. And one who trusts God to value his life and deliver him from his trouble. Three times in the wilderness... David has been tested. He was tested in the cave of Agilom where he cut off the robe of Saul but did not take his life. He was tested again with Nabal to take vengeance upon him for his ridiculous behavior and insulting behavior. And he was tested here again standing right above Saul <coughs> with Abishai ready to take the spear and plunge it through. And so David experienced testing in the wilderness. Now what I want to do with the balance of the message is talk about how David is a type of Adam, he's a type of Israel, and he's a type of Christ. Especially this concept of Christ and the wilderness. Uh, the theologian Richard Gaffin made a rather remarkable comment. I was reading one day an article by him 
uh, on eschatology, but he says this. He says, in the book of Hebrews, we see the reality that Christ is our exalted high priest, and we are the church as a pilgrim congregation, a people in the wilderness. Right now, we as a church exist in the wilderness. How does he know that? He says, utilizing a broad covenant historical analogy, the writer of Hebrews compares the church between Christ's exaltation and his return to Israel in the desert. So the time between Christ ascending to the right hand of the uh, Father, uh, occupying himself now in the office of high priest for his people, the time on earth between then and the second coming is the wilderness experience for the church in which we are being tested. And the writer of Hebrews says this. This is not my opinion. It is the writer of Hebrews that says, We have not entered into the possession of that salvation in its final and unthreatened form, that is God's rest. And so we see that. Now I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 8 for just one second. To help us sort of get, uh, get our, wrap our minds around this concept of being in the wilderness and being tested. And so we, like Israel, are in the wilderness. And in Deuteronomy 8, beginning in verse 1, he said, The whole commandment that I command you today, you shall be careful to do that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land that the Lord swore to give you uh, to your fathers. And you shall remember the whole way the Lord your God has led you these 40 years in the wilderness that he might humble you testing you to know what was in your heart whether you would keep his commandments or not and he humbled you and let you hunger and fed you with manna which you did not know nor did your fathers know that he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of God this is the discipline if you want to call it that of living in the wilderness. We as the church in the current eschatological setup are now experiencing a wilderness time in which we as believers are tested. We are constantly tested. Now, we go back to the Garden of Eden, and you all know about Adam. And you all know that Adam and Eve were in the garden, and the serpent, Satan takes the form of a serpent, comes to Eve, tempts her, she uh, swallows it hook, line, and sinker, takes the fruit, gives us to Adam, who willingly complies, and upon doing that, they failed the test to see and know whether in their heart there was the integrity and willingness to obey and serve God. And so because of that, they experienced the judgment of God. Uh, he clothed them with animal skins in his mercy, their nakedness, which is a symbol of atonement. And he banished them from the garden of his presence. Adam and Eve failed. Then Israel was redeemed out of Egypt. And Israel wandered in the desert for 40 years, a period of probation and testing. And so they wandered around in the wilderness for 40 years. You remember that. And God fed them. They were humbled. They were hungry. They were thirsty. They rebelled against Moses. They rebelled against the leadership. They had ten specific tests 
in the wilderness, and Israel failed ten tests. Now, before you get on your high horse and go, well, I wouldn't have done it if I was there, you would have been the first one to do We are no better than they. And we have a lot more in, at our disposal than they ever did. We have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling within us. But they failed in the wilderness. Well, here comes the anointed one, David. David is a type of Christ. And so David's experiences, why does the writer of Samuel include all of these times where he had an opportunity to kill Saul and didn't do it, or take vengeance and didn't do it, because David is being tested. David is both uh, a representative of Adam, and he's a representative uh, corporately and humanly of Israel. David passes the test, although not perfectly. Because you remember, he takes his second wife in chapter 25. Uh, We don't want to make too much of that other than to say he did not pass uh, perfectly, but he was, uh, as a leader in Israel, affirmed that he passed. Though human he was, sinful he was, he passed. However, there's one greater than Adam, the second Adam. There's one greater than Israel, the new Israel. There's one greater than who? David. David's son, the scripture tells us, is the Lord Jesus Christ. And you remember upon his baptism that the Lord Jesus Christ was baptized by John the Baptist. And the spirit in the form of the dove came and lit upon him. And in Luke's gospel it says that same Holy Spirit that anointed the Lord Jesus Christ drove him into the wilderness to be tested by the devil for 40 days. Okay? You see a pattern here? That's why we read the Old Testament. That's why we love the Old Testament, because it foreshadows and uh, provides for us all kinds of types of the redemption of God progressively being revealed throughout the epochs of history. And so now we come to the Lord Jesus Christ who was tempted in the wilderness in the desert. And so the story points forward to Jesus. Jesus was tested in the wilderness. He was tested three times and his tests are quite similar. They involve the temptation to fast forward to glory and skip suffering, skip the cross, skip being abandoned by God as it were and to take the throne without pain. Later on, Jesus tells his disciples that he must suffer. Peter objects vehemently. Don't do it that way. And Jesus says, get behind me who? Satan. He knew it when he heard it. And he recognized that behind Peter's words are the promptings of the devil. The point is not that Christ would suffer, but that Christ must suffer. David is not just suffering in the wilderness. He has an opportunity to skip the suffering, and he doesn't take it. Actually, it's touch and go for David. He does seize the throne, even if only symbolically, by both cutting Saul's robe. He does need Abigail's intervention to avoid coming to the throne with blood on his hands. But one way or another, he refuses to fast forward, button, and he points to Jesus and the sufferings of Jesus. David's temptation was to become a fool who grasped his kingdom through bloodshed. Jesus resisted that temptation. 
He does not come to his kingdom through bloodshed, but the blood that was shed was his own. If Jesus had fast-forwarded to his kingdom, as unlike David, he had every right to do, for he had all the credentials and all the power, then his kingdom could only have been bad news for us. The coming of God's kingdom means bloodshed, and for all who are rebels against that kingdom, and that includes all humanity, but when the king came, he first had to die in the place of the rebels. He suffered the punishment we deserved in our place, so that in the coming of his kingdom, there can be good news, nothing but good news, for those of us who are united to him by faith. And so we see that even in the Old Testament, the life of David finds its ultimate fulfillment and meaning and these stories of David are not just stories to entertain us, though they are entertaining, but they're pointing to a reality that takes place in space-time history when the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, became incarnate, became the man, Jesus, the Anointed One, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord is his exalted title, Jesus is his name, Christ means he's the Messiah, the anointed one. And just as Jesus resisted the temptations of the devil in the wilderness in order to uh, overcome those temptations and accomplish redemption for his people, his obedience and his resisting of the suffering and temptation in the wilderness was for us. And it counts for us. However, there's more to the story. Because we know that Jesus was crucified. We know he was buried. We know he rose again on the third day. That he appeared to over 612 people. That he was exalted on the day of the ascension. In Acts chapter 1, it tells us he was taken back up into heaven the same way he came. And he is now at the right hand of God the Father, being our great priest and so the Christ suffers like us this means that I have a king and I have a Lord who has suffered we have a king who is like us the writer of Hebrews says this in bringing many sons and daughters to glory it was fitting that God for whom and through whom everything exists should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through what he suffered. Christ's way was suffering first, the cross before glory and the crown. And those of us who are united to him by faith must expect the same for ourselves. We are in the wilderness. We are being tested. I used to call it uh, every time Israel took a test and failed it, they had to take another lap in the wilderness. There's a lot of laps, because as we know, they were there 40 years. And I read one time where if they'd gone straight through the wilderness like the way anybody else could have and not have been led by the wilderness, it wouldn't have taken very long, nowhere near 40 years. But God kept recycling them in the wilderness, testing them, showing them what's in their heart, your heart which is what he does to us. He shows us what's in our heart. We don't want to see it, but he shows us time and time again to cause us to cry out for him in dependence upon him. And so, this does not mean 
that Jesus, saying Jesus was perfect through what he suffered doesn't mean that he was flawed and it doesn't mean he was purged or put right. It means that he needed to be qualified and equipped to be our Savior. He needed to know what it was like to be human, flesh and blood. He needed to be one of us. I remember that song, was it Jewel that sang? If God was one of us, a slob like all of us. I didn't like the second line. But I wanted to tell her, he, huh? Was that John Osborne? Well, I'm corrected. I was wrong, thank you. First time this year. Um, <laughs> but thank you. Uh, but Jesus became a human. You know, I, I must admit, from childhood on until seminary, I kind of saw Jesus as a ubermensch or a superman. You know, we talk about Jesus, and I go, "Well, yeah, God. He was God. He he didn't have, he didn't have to struggle." No, Jesus was the God Man. He's one hundred percent God, and he's one hundred percent man, united in one person. But he's one hundred percent man. He is like us in every way, sin accepted. It's really important. Jesus didn't go straight to be crowned to be our Savior. He could not even go straight from his baptism to the cross. He had to experience problems and pain so that he could sympathize with us in our problems and pain. We worship Jesus, and rightly so. He is our King. He is our God. But there's a danger that we can end up thinking of him as something other than human, as superhuman, as though he floated through the years on earth impervious to any kinds of tensions and issues that we face each day. No, Jesus is as human as you in his human nature. I remember talking with someone who said, I just want someone to understand me. I want to, know, I want to talk to somebody who's been through it. So I said, Jesus understands. He knows what it's like. And my friend says, he didn't count. He's different. It was very different for him. And that is not true. It is not very different for him. He had real problems. He was truly human. He had real heartache and heartbreak. He was despised and rejected. He was misunderstood and betrayed. He was hungry and lowly. He was mocked and tortured. We do not have a high priest who is unable to feel sympathy for our weaknesses, Hebrews says. But we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. You have access, if you are a Christian, if you have looked outside of yourself for salvation and rested and trusted in who Jesus is and what he's accomplished for you, then you are united to him by faith and you have repented of your sins and you are connected to him. You have access right now to the person at the right hand of the Father, the Lord of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ. You have access to him and he understands you. He's not aloof. He's not smug. He's not holier than we think, but rather, he is holy, but he's human. His human nature, now glorified, is at the right hand of God, 
And he's able to sympathize with this Jesus, the Son of God, God himself, knows what it is to be human. He sympathizes with, with our weakness. He knows what it is like for you. Therefore, as we live our wilderness experience in the present, as we have the already of the kingdom and the not yet of the kingdom, and we're still living in the wilderness, we're still living in exile because we are not home yet, we have a Savior who is more than ready and willing and able to sympathize with you. He's not your enemy. He's the best friend you'll ever have. He's the one who loves you more than you can imagine. And so, though he's exalted in heaven... His glorification has expanded his capacity to sympathize with every one of us. I only have the capacity to sympathize with a few people at once. My knowledge is limited. My presence is limited. My emotional resources are limited. But the exalted Christ has the power to sympathize with every one of his people. And the Spirit brings his presence to each one of us. He is still as human today as he was when he was here on earth. And he still remembers what it is to experience and live with great problems. But now he has a capacity to sympathize with everyone, whether we are going through our wilderness testing period, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, we're not forgotten by him. None of us are neglected by him. Have you ever thought about that? Do you realize that you have that kind of excess? Some of you say, well, <laughs> I don't want to bother him. He's got the whole universe to worry about. No, he didn't come for the whole universe. He came for you. He came to be your savior. He came to be your faithful high priest. And he is able to save to the uttermost those who come to God by him. But he's able to have compassion. He dwells in a throne of grace, he says. That we can come boldly to the throne of grace and receive grace and help in our times of difficulty and trouble. That's how you need to see Jesus. And for some reason, we have so allowed the deity of Christ to swallow up his humanity that we've fallen guilty to some of the heretical errors of all time, to forget his humanity. He knows. He understands. He's there. He's listening. He's tenderhearted. He's willing. He's compassionate. And you have access. So much more to say. But oh, so little time to say it. So with that said, um, I want us now to focus our attention on the conclusion of our message. You might say, well, all this, Pastor, you're talking about happened 2,000 years ago, but now Jesus is exalted in heaven. Now he has the capacity to sympathize with all. What does that mean? It means that you and I can approach a God who knows, who understands, who listens, who helps. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in time of need. You are not coming to a king who knows nothing of your life. You can talk to God about your problems and your pain because he knows what it's like to have problems and pain and he suffered the full extent of their power without breaking and sinning. He knows. He's taken it to the depths and he knows. So when you're in the wilderness, 
It is no more, it can never be more, than he has experienced. And since he came through the wilderness, it is no more, it can never be more, than he can help you with and he can help you through. I don't know what it is about people who think that somehow God hears my prayers better than he hears yours. Well, you're a preacher. Yes, yeah, so what? But it's, it's almost like, preacher, you pray for me. I get this at a gym because the genie's out of the bo- lamp, out of the bottle. Everybody at my gym now knows I'm a pastor. Can't hide anymore. But the wonderful side of that is people are coming up to me and sharing their problems. And that's wonderful. Except when I'm really getting at it on the exercise. I don't, I don't want anybody talking to me. But they're doing it. And I just rem- I thought to myself the other day, People are so devastated and without hope. And here you are sitting on top of it, knowing exactly who and what they need. So I just point him to Jesus. I said, I cannot possibly imagine how deeply you are hurt and how frustrated you must be, but I can point you to someone who does. And then I tell him about Jesus. And that's wonderful. John Wynn will come up every once in a while. He goes to my gym, and he'll come up every once in a while and tell me a sermon he's listening to and how good it is, and I appreciate that. But, John, I've been talking to more and more people at that gym every day. So it's a great field of uh, evangelism and to point people to Jesus. But as your pastor today, I have no more authority than you do to go to the throne of God. I'm not better than you. I don't have a higher place in the hierarchy. Um, you know, I used to think as a kid, well, if God heard anybody's prayers, it had to be Billy Graham. So if I had a problem, I'd have to get to Billy Graham, and you know, and Catholics do that with Mary. Uh, we don't need either one of those. We have direct access to Jesus, and we can pour out our souls to him. You think a lot about what I've said to you this morning, about how Jesus is your faithful high priest. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for this text and how it shows us that David is a huge sign pointing to the one who would come and that we must suffer and endure tribulation in order to enter the kingdom of God. But we do not do so as people who have no hope or no one to turn to. We have a Savior who knows what it's like to be wounded and bruised who knows what it's like to be rejected, knows what it's like to be misunderstood, knows what it's like to experience humiliation and and brokenness through mistreatment of people. So, Father, we pray that we learn how to integrate this reality into our experience and unburden ourselves at your throne. And this we pray in Christ's name. Now, Lord, as we continue to help uh, enable us to continue to do ministry in this city and in this place, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen.